Good morning. Is that PowerPoint up as well? Wonderful. Thanks very much. I think it must be one of the most frustrating things about being a poet or a songwriter that people misunderstand what it is that you're saying. Um, I found out through trawling the internet the other day that there's a whole contingent of people who think that Adele's song is, should I give up or should I just keep chasing penguins? And I guess it matters what we hear, doesn't it, really? Um, it's not just, though, people who mishear the words. Sometimes people misunderstand things. Uh, Sting is famously very annoyed that people trot out every breath you take at weddings and other romantic gatherings when it's a jealous song about a, an ex-partner. Um, people have obviously misunderstood him there. Sometimes we just don't get the full significance of a lyric. Uh, one of my parents' favorite songs when I was a kid was Strawberry Fields by the Beatles. I had no idea for 20 years that there was a children's home called Strawberry Field just down the road from John Lennon, and that that was his sort of mental picture when he was writing that song. Sometimes we just don't get the full significance of what's being said. And so I think when we come to Christmas and the same words being read year after year, the same songs being sung year after year, it can be easy to let the words just wash over us and not really to dig into the significance. And so today I want to go to a couple of very familiar texts that we hear read Christmas after Christmas and say, what do they say? Because it matters what we hear. We don't want penguins. I want to start off with the verses that were being read over that, uh, that video that we watched earlier. That's from Isaiah 9, prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, looking forward And he says this, just in case it wasn't clear enough in the video. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Yeah, come on. (laughs) He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, these are words of great hope. 700 years before Jesus, this is actually, if you're looking at that background there, this is actually one of the scrolls of Isaiah that they found near the Dead Sea. This, written 700 years before Christ, is a passage of great hope. The people walking in darkness have seen a light. And it's interesting to think, you know, now we look back at that and we say, oh yeah, this this refers to Jesus. But at the time, what would people hearing this have thought? Well, if we look at the language here, there's, there's actually quite a lot of military language going on. And in fact, if you read, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them. Midian was a nation that oppressed Israel time and time again. In fact, they used to kind of come and just camp all over their land whenever they were harvesting and steal all their stuff 
and then disappear again. And then next time it was the next harvest, they'd come and take everything again. And it was a, it was a great oppression. And Israel were essentially living in a form of slavery. And God did a mighty work of deliverance where he took a little ragtag band of freedom fighters, essentially, and delivered Israel of this Midian oppression. So when people are hearing this, they're hearing this is about a throwing off of oppression. And they're probably envisaging the promise being, you know, some kind of leader who's going to lead them in the fight against the oppressor. Definitely military language. But not just that. If we read on, you know, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned. So this is not just a temporary victory. That's what you do at the end of the war. You know, you're not going to need these boots anymore. You're not going to need to put that blood-stained cloak back on for one more battle because we're done with war. Let's burn everything that reminds us of it. This is a, this is a final victory. They're not just seeing a throwing off of something for a little while. They're seeing a victory that will end war a freedom that will break oppression forever. And it all rests on this one man, doesn't it? This child who's born, this son who's given. He gets all the titles. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. It's his government and his peace that will know no end. Everything rests on his shoulders. And so we see there's this hope that's held out. And this hope looks like one person, And to them, this one person is some kind of military leader that will lead them to freedom. And this hope gets passed down generation to generation. Because actually, in the time of Isaiah, they don't see this mighty deliverance that will end all oppression. They end up taken off into exile. And so they tell their children, they say, look, even though we're being oppressed, don't worry. One day, God will send us this person and he will bring freedom forever. And then they don't see it in their generation But they tell their kids, don't worry, even though we're still waiting for it. One of these days, God is going to send us this person who will free us. And it goes from being the the Persians who are oppressing them to being the Greeks to being the Romans. And still, as they're oppressed, they remember this tradition. Don't worry, one of these days, God will send us a savior. God will send us somebody who will break off these oppressors and give us life free from oppression. And so it's into that context that 700 years later, Jesus is born. No wonder Herod is so troubled when the wise men turn up from some distant land and say, we've seen signs in heaven that a king's being born. He's going, help, I'm the puppet ruler of the oppressor. Is this my time? Is my time up? This is, this is serious stuff. So this is what was promised some kind of leader to break oppression. But what did he look like when he came? Well, for that, I'd like to turn to another very familiar passage, which Lynn read for us earlier. This is the first chapter of John's Gospel, and it talks about the coming of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Sorry, start again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh 
and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that passage is rich with imagery of all kinds, but it's very easy to see, isn't it, how that reflects that prophecy that Isaiah had given hundreds of years before. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The light shines in the darkness. This is the promised saviour coming at long last. I remember being at a meal not so long ago um, when some very nice food had been brought out to us. But after we'd eaten it, a few of the guys were looking around and going, I'm still quite hungry, actually. Have you ever been in that situation? And you're kind of desperately hoping that's not quite it. And then suddenly the main course was brought out. We thought, oh, that was just starters. Okay, okay, we're set now. This is great. And that's a little bit like what we've got here because, you see, they were expecting, they were expecting to see a king just born from another king, you know, passed down the line, just another king born, but perhaps one who would be given special gifting by God, specially anointed by God, and would throw off oppression. But what they get is so much more. What they get is God, the one who was from the beginning, the one who made everything that was made, becoming human and coming to them. What they expected was great, but what they got was glorious, absolutely glorious. And they have got so much more than was promised in Jesus. And yet there was dissatisfaction. And one of the reasons, perhaps, if we go back to the Isaiah passage, is what became of that promise of freedom from oppression. We know our history. We know that Jesus didn't throw off the Romans. He didn't free Israel from being oppressed by them. In fact, quite the opposite. He was executed by the Romans in the most public, humiliating way known at the time. He didn't break off that oppression at all. So what became of that promise? Well, I'd like to put it to you that actually the enemy was never the Romans, not the real enemy. The enemy was never the Greeks or the Persians or whoever, whichever nation it might have been at the time that was top dog and that was oppressing others. That was never the real enemy. To see what Jesus really did, we have to go back to the big story of Scripture. Because in the beginning, God created a perfect world. And into that perfection, mankind, we read in in the early parts of the Bible, mankind brought evil and death through disobeying God. And wherever we stop in Scripture, wherever we stop in our history books, wherever we stop in the present day, behind all oppression, behind all suffering and sadness and sickness is evil and death. That's always the fear at the end of it, is evil and death. And you can't conquer one without the other. If you conquer evil but there's still death, there's still going to be sadness. If you conquer death but don't conquer evil, then you end up with an immortality that's a curse. You end up with George Orwell's 1984 where he says, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. That's an end to death with no end to evil. What we need is someone who can conquer both evil and death. And for that we need light to conquer the evil, the darkness. And we need life to conquer death. 
That's what Jesus brought. And to see how he did it, as Steve said earlier, we turn to that other great Christian festival, Easter. Because as we saw in that video, as those children waited for someone to come, and they waited in sickness with that crutch and the bandages, heavily burdened in semi-darkness, Jesus came to us in our brokenness. Jesus came to us in our sickness and our sadness. He brought light and he took away those things that burdened us. He overcame not with a sword in his hand, but with a cross. So if that's what Jesus did, why does it matter today? Just grab myself a glass of water. Well, to look at why it matters today, I'd like to look at one more really familiar text. And those of you who know me well will know this is one of my favorite songs of all time, and particularly my favorite Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that third verse, which is just glorious. When we hear it, I wonder if we can remember the truth behind it. It's the third verse. You've got to the end of the carol. It's like, okay, yeah, we'll just get through this one and then we get the mince pies. Well, actually, it's the best part of it. And it goes like this. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Well, there already you've got Isaiah 9, the prince of peace. But you've got John 1 as well. He's not just any old prince of peace. He's born from heaven. This is God become man. Hail the son of righteousness. Light, that's the hope, and life. That's the freedom to all he brings. Jesus brings that light to conquer evil. Jesus brings that life to conquer death. Risen with healing in his wings. I want to pause there for a minute because I want to underline that Jesus changes lives today. We've just been praying for Abigail and Keith and I were reminiscing earlier this week that, was it 2006, Adrian? I've lost where you are now. 2006, you were in hospital fighting for your life after you and Ruth were in that car accident. And we were praying here for God to rescue Adrian. And we saw him rescued from a medical situation that looked hopeless. A couple of years later, Caroline's colleague, a lady called Fahana, where she was teaching at school, was also in a coma after a car accident and had the lowest possible brain activity score that you can have. And the doctor said, yeah, she's not coming back from this. And I remember praying and just seeing that score creep up as Caroline and her colleagues and a few others of us prayed. And we saw that life returning to her. Those are just a couple of testimonies, but those are, those are quite clear ones to me. People don't just come out of comas like that. God brought healing and God changes lives today. So when we say that Jesus has risen with healing in his wings, that's not just nice words. That's Jesus who brings hope and Jesus who brings life. Mild, he lays his glory by. This is amazing. (laughs) That the God who creates the universe, the God who rules over everything, should choose to put that glory to one side. And be born into that manger. Born that man no more may die. And here we get on to the mission. This is the mission, isn't it? 
born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And every time I sing that, my heart just thrills inside me because this is at the crux of it all. How does Jesus give us freedom from death? Well, he gives us new life, a totally new life. Jesus calls it being born again. And this life does not end in death, not ever. Just as we've been praying about sickness, actually, just last week, Caroline's grandfather passed away. And a few years before, he decided that he wanted to put his trust in Jesus. And I cannot tell you what it means to know that he entered into a new life. And that while he's now physically no longer here with us, he is alive not just now, but forever. And that's not wishful thinking. That's truth. I remember going with my aunt to visit my own grandfather when uh, he had passed away and was lying in the funeral parlor. And I remember her saying to me, tell me he's in a better place. And I thought, you know what? You don't actually believe this, but I can tell you he is in a better place. He put his trust in Jesus. He has a new life that can never be taken away from him a life that was won for him by that great saviour who conquered once and for all and forever evil and death. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. It matters what we hear. It matters what we do with it. I want to encourage you, for those of you who've already put your trust in Jesus, when you hear these words sung this Christmas, which has got to be at least another three or four times before the 25th, depending on how much Christmas shopping you've got left to do, of course. I want to encourage you, when you hear those words, to remember what it is and to celebrate what it is that Jesus has done in you, a new life that can never end. That's worth celebrating. That's worth putting a smile on our faces. But it's not just a done deal for those who've already got it. For anybody who hasn't yet asked Jesus for that new life, I want to encourage you, that offer is open today. And it's not just something that's sitting there on the table. It's something God is actively saying, please, I'd like to give this to you. Would you take it? Would you take this new life that will never end? It matters what we hear this season. As we hear familiar words, as we read familiar scriptures, let's keep our ears open to what God is saying to us.